You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, I remember Donna and I's excitement, our third year of marriage, when we were about to become first-time homeowners. We were moving from Dallas, Texas to College Station to begin leading a new ministry, and we were excited. We had purchased a home, so we loaded up our few meager possessions in a small U-Haul, and we made the journey across Texas towards this new house. And I'll never forget when we turned the corner and were arriving on this cul-de-sac, we looked up and we saw our realtor uh, nervously sweeping the driveway. We were like, okay, not sure why she's doing that, but we pulled up and when we got out, she was trembling. She was very uncomfortable. And we asked her, what's going on? And she said, well, you know how you signed the paperwork and the deposits and all this? Yes. And she said, well, there was just one formal piece. That is the current owner just had to sign some papers, but uh, he never showed up to sign. So this is not your home. You can't move in today. And we're not sure what he's playing at, but, but we're not done. And I remember as we stood there in front of our little U-Haul, it was disturbing to think we had peace and security and safety in a home and then to realize not so fast, maybe you don't. And I mention that because that's what's happening in Colossae. These were people who had put their faith in Jesus, the Son of God, that what he accomplished on the cross paid for their sin, wiped it away, and gave them peace with God, that they could know heaven smiles on me, and when I die, I have a future in eternity with him. I am secure. And yet some teachers had come into Colossae that said, not so fast. Maybe not. There's some work you have to do to appease God's wrath. You're not okay. And it's a disturbing thing to think you're at peace and maybe you're not. Uh, When we moved to College Station, I became the leader of a college ministry and I would watch every few years, some teachers would come into town and, and inevitably there would be thousands of college students that would show up in College Station with with a simple trust in Jesus to forgive their sin and give them a future in heaven. And they would come to college and they would interact with some of these teachers that told them, not so fast. If you haven't done X, if you haven't experienced Y, if you're not participating in Z, then you're not really saved. And so you think you have peace with God, but you don't. Until you're due A, B, and C, you have no peace. And it would disturb the faith of these kids that often would then interact with zeal to try to do the things to have peace with God because they didn't feel peace within themselves. And I know some of you hear that and you go, Ben, that's just called religion. That's what religion is. It's you have to do A, B, and C to appease God's wrath, to make him not angry at you so you can feel at peace with yourself. That's all religion is. That's why I left it. That's why I left the church because it was always do, do, do to feel good about yourself and I didn't want to do anymore. Well, let me submit to you, if you say that, you have to understand that there's also a secular version of that same story. So strip out the religious language 
And many of us are still on that same treadmill of, I have to do X, Y, and Z to feel good about myself. I have to attain this amount of financial wealth. I have to ascend this high on the corporate ladder. I have to get this amount of notoriety. I have to get whatever counsel is determining what success looks like. I have to win their approval so they can say, you succeeded in life. And so I am chasing Ben and I will prostrate myself before the gods of sex, money, fame, and power so I can feel good about me. Same ladder, you just posted it on a different wall. And it's a tyrannical system. It drives us crazy. You're never okay. You have to chase peace and security. And yet it's so attractive to us, the religious version and the secular version. Why? Why does this message have so much force? It derives its power from the sense within all of us that we don't feel good about ourselves. We feel something's wrong with us. We don't feel okay. So when someone comes along and says, it's because you're not okay, and purchase my new book because it's seven steps, we go, okay, and off we go down the next path of trying to feel less disturbed and more at peace. But it's interesting what the scriptures will do. As the Colossians experience that, Paul and the scriptures for you to find peace will not point you to what you must do. He will point you to what has been done, to fix your eyes on what God has done for you. And you see in verse 13, the diagnosis of us. Paul looks at the Colossians and it says, and you who were dead. He says, if you feel disturbed about your physical or spiritual sense, let me tell you spiritually, you are dead. If you feel like something's wrong, it's because something is profoundly wrong. So for many of you today, that's where the message begins. You don't just need a mild adjustment, something more profoundly wrong with you, that you're much worse off than you thought. Uh, it's interesting. Um, uh, I had an experience once of having to, in an emergency situation, go with a mortician to the morgue. And we went there because he had to dress the body of a man who had died tragically in a car wreck. And so I showed up there with him and walked into this room and here was this body, not dressed up as is often done at a funeral, but there lifeless on a table after a terrible accident. And the mortician said, excuse me, I have to go. And he left the room and left me alone with this bottle. And I remember looking at it and he was about my height and about my build, about my age, a young dad. And I stood there and I just decided to use this moment to pray for his family, for his wife and his kids. And after a few moments, he came back and we did what we needed to do to honor him. And as we left the building, one of the other guys who had been with us but hadn't come into the room didn't come in because he knew him. And as he was describing him, I remember he looked at me and he was like, actually, he looked a lot like you. He was about the same height, builds, even same hair color, he even talked kind of like you. And he just kept making comparisons with me in this body to the point where I was like, okay, that's, that's sufficient, stop. <laughs> and yet he was saying, man, make a connection with yourself and this corpse. That's what Paul does here when he describes our spiritual state. How do I describe where you are spiritually? Go to a morgue. 
Look at that body. That's where you are. Do you feel powerless to create peace? It's because you are. You lack power to get that internal peace in the same way a dead body lacks the power to rise. And then Paul will explain two aspects of our spiritual deadness. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He says, this condition was created by your decisions and by your constitution. He says, by your trespasses. To trespass is to consciously and deliberately step where you're not meant to go. That's what it means to trespass. You went someplace you were never meant to go. You crossed a boundary you weren't supposed to cross. Romans talks about that with our first parent, Adam. It says of Adam, the many died through that man's trespass. One trespass brought condemnation. Because of one man's trespass, death reigned. One trespass led to condemnation for all men. So when Adam went the wrong way, all of humanity ended up in the wrong space with him. And yet, here it talks about trespasses. Why? He led us the wrong direction, but then we participated in it. We made willful decisions as well. We reveled in the very trespass that he had done himself. And so Paul says, hey, you are dead in your trespasses, your active rebellion against God. But then he talks about your uncircumcision. So you're dead, not just by your activity, but by your identity. Not just by your decisions, but by your very status. Which again, some of you read this and go, uncircumcision? Why does he keep bringing that up? That feels so personal and so strange. Why use this language? Well, in the Old Testament, circumcision was an outward symbol of a covenant relationship between the Jewish people and God that I will be your people. And a Jewish boy, when he was eight days old, would be circumcised. So it was not predicated upon anything he had done. It was a right conferred to you by virtue of your birth. I was born and then I enter into this covenant with God and have all the rights and privileges of being part of the Jewish nation, right? By virtue of a birth, not by virtue of what I've done. I enter the status of a covenant with all its attendant privileges, right? And the Bible will say that's our relationship with God. And that outward symbol of circumcision is meant to be a sign in the Old Testament of an inward change in heart. He said, I also want to circumcise your heart to cut away a deadness towards God and to bring to life something that loves God. We're meant to be that way. And Paul will grab this language because in the New Testament, the church understands the outward symbol is not necessary, but the inward heart change is that what's dead in me is cut away so what's alive can come forth. And in that, I have a living relationship, a vital union, a covenant with God. It's interesting, we were doing our devotional time uh, at the breakfast table the other day and my daughter Sparrow, uh, we were talking about what it is to be right with God. And she looked at her younger brother and said, we have to cut out our heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And she was using a quote from the Old Testament passage about the circumcision of the heart. And I looked at her and I said, that act is right. Cutting out a dead heart and putting in a life. But the actor is wrong. You said we have to do it. That's not true. It must be done for us. We have no more power to make ourselves alive than Lazarus did to walk out of the grave by his own power. Someone else must act upon us. 
And that is what God has done. You who were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made alive together with him. That's the heart of the sentence. God made you alive. He acted upon you and he did it together with him. In the same way Jesus was buried and rose so you can die and rise. Your intimate vital union with Christ moves you from death to life. By his power alone, what you could not do, God did for you. Let me geek out for a minute about the Greek, all right? Let me just point out something to you. This is the sentence I just said. Without getting too into the details, this right here, this, that is the word zoe. It's the word life. This right here is the word made. Made alive. This kind of ending here is, is, is y'all. Y'all were made alive. And this prefix means together with him, stuck in there. You were made alive with him. And this is the word y'all. This is the word with, and this is him. This is entirely unnecessary because he already said it. But Paul wants to drill the point. You were made alive together with him. You, with him, I want you to know that. You've been made alive together with him. It's in your union with him, you were made alive. What you could not do, God did for you in Christ. And it's intimately tied together. Your life is together with him. There's not even a space in the words. So my kids and I, we watched a Muppet movie the other day. And in this Muppet movie, Uh, There's an evil Kermit the Frog that wants to be known as the greatest criminal on earth. And his sidekick is Ricky Gervais. And Ricky Gervais' mindset is we're partners in becoming the most evil in the world. Whereas this evil Kermit says, no, you're more of my sidekick. There's a bit of a battle between how intimately they're connected. And so as they talk about winning the the, the award of being the best criminal on the planet... Ricky Gervais says, but my name will be next to you on the plaque, right? There's a plaque somewhere. And what the evil Kermit says in his mixed up weird accent is he says, yes, my name, space bar, space bar, space bar, your name. And I love that line because he's like, I just need some separation from you. My name, space bar, space bar, space bar, your name. (laughs) When God brought Jesus to life, he looks at you. And there's no space bar, no space, no space between you and me. And you are made alive together with him, intimately tied to the one who does have power over the grave. How did he do that? How could he accomplish that? It says, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. That having forgiven, the, the core of that is the word charis, it's the word grace. He graced us. It was kindness extended to us. Not earning, not wage, not a thing you accomplished. It was the kindness of God that forgave us all of our trespasses. Did you see that? It's the plural. Not just generally speaking your sinful nature. 
He forgave all of your trespasses, every single little one. Uh, when my dad was in the hospital, he had uh, a priest come visit him. And the priest was encouraging him to make peace with God. And the priest said, I want to sit with you here while you confess all your sins. And my dad said, all of them? We're going to be here a while. And the priest was like, that's fine. And he did confess all of them. And there's a wonderful liberty to that of saying, I'll keep a few because I don't want to expose them. To expose them all. To see them all lifted up and separate from you. That purity of soul, that lightness, that's a beautiful thing. I thought of it this way. Like if I handed you a glass of water, you might be inclined to drink it. But if I took a big patty of cow dung and put it in there, you would not want to drink it. But what if I said, well, let me take most of it out. I'll just leave a little bit of cow dung, just like smeared on one ice cube, that's it. You still wouldn't want to drink it. You'd still say it's polluted. I want it to be pure, clean, completely made pure. And what he's saying here is that's what God has done. He took every little trespass, not just your big sins, not just the major ones, even the littlest, saddest, tiniest, grossest ones. I, I know them all. I've seen them all. And I'm gracing them all. I'm taking it all away. How did he do that? It says in verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. How did he take them away? He says, I canceled this record of debt. The idea there, the word record is, is literally a combination of the words hand and written. It carries into your mind the idea of how debts were settled back in the Greco-Roman world. If you incurred a debt, you would write out what you bought and on credit and, and you would do it in your own hand and sign it. So if they had to take you to court, they would say, well, did you purchase such and such on credit? Well, I'm not sure I did. Really? Because here it is written on this document that is your handwriting, that is your name, you did this. It would be written out. There would be a paper trail of what you've done. And he says here, there was a record of debt, a tab of all that you've done. It's interesting, the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament is constructed like a legal contract of the day. It's fascinating to see the layout because God told them, I'm entering a legal contract with you. And they signed it. That God said, I will do X for you, you will do Y. And if you obey, I will bless. If you disobey, I will destroy you. That was the covenant in, in Deuteronomy. And they disobeyed they didn't keep up their legal end of the, uh, of the document, and God brought judgment. Now he brought mercy, but we'll get into that later. But, but Paul will look at them and say, you had a legal obligation, and you failed to meet it. But then here he's talking to people who aren't Jewish, and he explains this more in Romans. He said, you never signed a document like the Jewish people in Deuteronomy, but all of us have a conscience, a sense of right and wrong that God has woven into us that as I enter into this world, there are better ways to act than other ways. And all of us, even though it may be rudimentary, have a sense of conscience, and we violated that. 
So all of us have this record of debt. We knew the good we ought to do and we did not do it. All of us have a record of debt that he says here stood against us. It's hostile to us. It condemns us. It shows us you are wrong, right? And it condemns both Jew and Gentile. All are guilty. I remember the other day with my kids, one of them yelled out from their bedroom, so-and-so hit me. I said, how could they hit you if you're in your bed in your other room? Complete silence. Oh, you want to condemn them for your sin. But when you bring the judge, you realize you also alike are under sin and thus both deserving of condemnation. You're wrong too. And the Bible says all of us stand with a record of debt against us. It stood against us with its legal demands, meaning it had the force of law behind it. And that's why it's hostile to us. That's the word it uses, that it's coming against you because you did it wrong. You don't get to wriggle out of physical laws. You jump off a cliff, you're going to fall. Doesn't matter if you've got a great lawyer. Right? You're going down. And morally, there are laws God has made. You transgress those. He says, then you will be judged. There's no way out of it. You feel guilty because you are. Now, let me say, does that mean every bad thing that happened to you in life is your fault? No. Everyone is guilty and horrible things have been perpetrated against many of you. All of us are victim and victimizer in different ways, different categories, different degrees. So I'm not saying your particular tragedies are your fault. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is all of humanity is alike under condemnation because we're all in debt because of the things we've done and because of who we are. And yet, Jesus takes that document and it says he canceled it. He set it aside, nailing it to the cross. Those are his verbs. Cancel means I wipe it away. Back then, if you had a debt and it needed to be paid, if someone paid it, they would take that legal document and they would draw a big X over it. They say, this is blotted out. Or if you had a whiteboard, you would wipe it away. And here he says, he took all your debt. It was like you were in the courtroom and someone read it all. And he stepped forward and he wiped that slate clean. He canceled it. And then the word set aside is not just cancel. The word set aside is literally lift up and get out of the midst of us. That he wiped this thing clean, then picked it up and moved it out of the room. How did he do that? How could he do that? It says he did it by nailing it to the cross. I had a young man come to me once at a passion conference and he said to me, you know, you keep talking about how our sins can be forgiven if we just trust Jesus. He says, but you don't know what I've done. And I just can't look at what I've done and think God just dismisses it. And I told him, you're right. God can't just dismiss it. And that's not what he's done. He didn't just erase your debt and pretend it didn't exist. He paid for it. He paid it. Look at the cross. See what he did up there. The wages of sin is death, and you could not pay that wage. So he stepped in and interposed his precious blood. He paid it for you so that God could maintain a standard of justice that will not look upon sin 
and yet also be the justifier of the sinner that I found a way to forgive you. In modern Western society, if I discover you've trespassed, I cancel you. You're canceled. You must go away. You are banished from society. Jesus says, I see all your trespasses, not just the one on social media from five years ago. I see them all. I've seen them all. They stand in the divine courtroom, hostile against you. And yet I will pay for them. So I find a way to cancel all your trespasses and redeem you. Jesus is so different from the world today because he says, I'm in the business of canceling, but I cancel your trespasses so I can redeem you. We have a message of hope that the world is in desperate need of. I can condemn sin at its full height, and yet I can rescue the sinner and make you new. That's the glory and the beauty of what Christ did on the cross. You don't just erase debts. You have to pay for them. I have a friend that secretly on the side in the back pays for people's college career who were the first people in their family to ever go to college. And so college is free, but it's not free. College isn't free. Teachers have to be paid salaries. Buildings have to be maintained. It costs money to run a college. So these kids get a free education. Why? Because my friend steps in and says, take their debt and hold it up to my account. Their account is insufficient to pay it. Mine is not. So I will take their debt and I will pay it. So grace is free because it's so costly. All of our transgressions paid for by the precious blood of Christ. That's how God did it, that he took your certificate of debt and nailed it to the cross. Not a piece of paper, but the hands and feet of Jesus. That Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that you would never have to. He took on that pain so that you would know nothing about it. And he went to the grave and paid the wage of sin. How do we know his payment was sufficient? If I go to a restaurant and eat food, they put a bill in front of me. If I try to get up and run out, they're gonna stop me. What will make them let me go? When I have paid the amount I owe, they release me. How do we know Jesus' payment for your sin was sufficient? Because the grave could not hold him. He paid it in full and rose from the grave. You can talk a little more from that if you want to, because that's some good news today. Jesus paid it all, canceling the certificate of debt that was hostile against us. He buried it in the grave. And then, not only that, in verse 15, it says, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. The rulers and authorities there, if you're new to the series with us, these are spiritual powers that the Colossians thought, I have to placate them in order to not feel bad about myself or feel judged in the world. And Paul's saying, no, Jesus is superior over those forces. He's saying, for many of us, the way Satan completely just disturbs you is by reminding you of your real world failures, of your real world shame. 
That's what gets most of us. If he accused you of things that aren't true, that's not gonna disturb you. But he, he accuses you with, with truth. You said this, you did this, you always do this, you did it again. He shames us with that legal document of all the debt we've incurred, all the mistakes we've made. He over and over does that. And it's with that document of condemnation, he wants to destroy you. He takes not only the role of lawyer accusing you, he stands at the ready with the ax as executioner. I want to accuse you and I want to condemn and kill you. I want to convince you you're guilty and I wanna judge you in your sin. And what Jesus does is he steps into that law court and he takes that certificate of debt and he writes over it what the X was called in Greek was a chi for a chiasm. He puts a cross over it. He says the cross paid for this. And then he takes that document and he throws it away. And then in this text, he walks outside to the executioner and slaps the ax out of his hand. You don't get to judge my kid anymore because there is no legal document standing against them. It's paid. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because he has set us free from the law of sin and death. He not only canceled that document, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. No one gets to stand in judgment over you spiritually. And it says he put them to open shame by triumphing over them. What does that mean by put them to open shame, by triumphing over them? A triumph was an event back in, the, in this day. It was like a parade that if you were a conquering king, you would ride back into your town victoriously to show people that you have been victorious over what they feared. I actually have here the, the record of a triumph written by Plutarch about Amelius's triumph over his enemies. I know you've read it, his great defeat of Perseus, but by way of review, <laughs> let me share with you a triumph because this is the imagery Paul grabs. It's not the victory, it's the after party. The people erected a scaffold in the forum, in the circuses, as they call their buildings for horse races and in all other parts of the city where they could best behold the show. The spectators were clad in white garments. All the temples were open, full of garland and perfume. The ways were cleared and kept open by numerous officers who drove back all the crowd, all those who crowded into or ran across the main avenue. The triumph lasted three days. On the first, which was scarcely long enough for the sight, were to be seen the statues, pictures and colossal images that were taken from the enemy, drawn upon 250 chariots. On the second was carried in a great many wagons, the finest and richest armor of the Macedonians, both of brass and of steel, all newly polished and glittering, the pieces of which were piled up and arranged purposefully with the greatest art, so as to seem to be tumbled in heaps carelessly and by chance. Helmets were thrown upon shields, coats of mail upon greaves, Cretan targets, Thracian bucklers, quivers of arrows lay huddled among horses' bits, and through these they appeared the points of naked swords intermixed with long Macedonian sarcissus. All these arms were fastened together with just so much looseness so that they struck against one another as they were drawn along and made a harsh and alarming noise so that even as spoils of a conquered enemy, they could not be beheld without dread. 
After these wagons loaded with armor, there followed 300 men who carried the silver that was coined and 750 vessels, each of which weighed three talents and was carried by four men. On the third day, early in the morning, first came the trumpeters, who did not sound as they were wont in a procession or solemn entry, but such a charge as the Romans used when they encouraged the soldiers to fight. Next followed young men wearing frocks with ornamented borders who led to the sacrifice 120 stalled oxen. They're about to have a barbecue. With their horns gilded and their heads adorned with ribbons and garland. And with these were boys who carried basins for libations. They're about to drink of silver and gold. After this was brought gold coins, which were divided into vessels and weighed three talents. Like those that contained the silver, they were in number 77. These were followed by those who brought the consecrated bowls, which Emilius had caused to be made, that weighed 10 talents and which were set with precious stones and all the gold plates that were used at Perseus's table. Next to these came Perseus's chariot, he's the bad guy, in which his armor was placed, and on that his diadem, his, his deposed crown. And after a little intermission, his children were led in captives. And them, with them, their train of attendants and masters and teachers, all shedding tears. And after his children and his attendants came Perseus himself, clad in all black, wearing the boots of his country, and looking like one altogether stunned and deprived of reason through the greatest of his misfortunes. Next followed a great company of his friends and familiars, whose countenances were disfigured with grief and who let the spectators see by their tears and their continual looking upon Perseus that it was his misfortune that they so much lamented, regardless of their own. After these were carried 400 crowns, all made of gold, sent from the cities by their respective deputations to Amelius in honor of his victory. Then he himself came. Seated on a chariot, magnificently adorned, a man well worthy to be looked at, even without these ensigns of power. Apparently he was hot. Dressed in a robe of purple, interwoven with gold, holding a laurel branch in his right hand, and all the army in like manner with bows of laurel in their hands, divided into their hands and companies, followed the chariot of their commander, some singing verses mingled with raillery, other songs of triumph and praise of Amelius' deeds, who indeed was admired and accounted happy of all men. This is what Paul calls to mind for us. When they crucified Christ on the side of an open road, it was meant to be the ultimate emblem of shame. You're a criminal dying alone on the side of the road. Paul says, no, that was his triumph. That was him disarming the rulers and authorities, taking the one weapon they had against you, your legitimate condemnation of sin, and slapping it out of their hands. And when he rose from the grave, he rose in triumph. All the armor of the enemy now clanks hopelessly in a chariot. All the enemy now is bound in chains. And the king, Satan, he is bound and in mourning and being tugged along. Why would they do that to an enemy king? It's because that enemy king terrified you. If he rolls over your town, you all die or become enslaved. And so the being you dreaded, we now show you as powerless before your king. It was to help you psychologically. We do this in our current law courts now, that someone who's been victimized by someone who is already being sentenced to prison, 
The victim is allowed to stand there in court and to speak to that person who is now bound in chains and powerless. Why do we let the victim do that? So that they can regain the identity. My identity is not victim. You victimized me, but that does not get the last word. You don't get to define me. What you did to me was true and terrible and horrible, and yet you stand condemned, I do not. You go into prison, I go free. You have no hope, but I have a future because justice has been done. That's what the triumph does. That's what we do in courts. That's what you get to do. Satan gets to tempt you to remember all that you've done and the condemnation it deserves. What you get to say is say, but who will bring a charge against God's elect? Because no power, not rulers or authorities, get to separate me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because what I was powerless to do, he did for me. So you stand condemned, I go free. You are judged, I am loosed. You are bound in the triumph, I'm dressed up and ready for the party because of what my hero has done. Christ, our Redeemer, triumph over the grave. God's righteous standard met. His wrath appeased. The law satisfied. Debt paid. Transgressions wiped away. Satan stripped. You redeemed. It's done. So Paul looks at the Colossians and says, so don't let anyone disqualify you. Don't let a single voice enter your mind that tells you you're not okay. Don't let any voice of doubt diminish the power of your conquering King Jesus. He paid it all. So you have hope, you have a future, you have a confidence because you walk in the triumph of our conquering King. That's who you are. And so does it change the way we live? You better believe it. Head up, shoulders back, free to give and serve others because we're not looking to try to find a way to make ourselves okay. We are liberated from an incurvature of the soul and set free to be a blessing to others. Your life does change, but not to earn God's approval, but because you have it. So the Christian changes because of what he's done, not in order to be what we become. We paid for that house, we signed the documents, and inevitably, that guy who owned it had to release it to us. Christ has paid for your home. He has paid for your future. You are secure. You are safe. And when the enemy comes to rattle your confidence, you send him to look at the receipt. It's been paid in full. I'm free in him. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.